I'm not sure if you've heard of it or not, but there is a book, uh, a story is really what it started as, called The Picture of Dorian Gray. If you have heard about it, it probably means that you're really into philosophy or comics philosophy because it's created a lot of interesting conversations over the years, or comics because he made an appearance in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But The Picture of Dorian Gray is a story that was written by Oscar Wilde. And it's a fascinating story because the concept behind it is that this young, wealthy, good-looking man, Dorian Gray, uh, uh, hires someone to paint a picture of him. And this picture uh, had a unique quality. It would bear his age. As, as he got older, he wouldn't age physically, the picture would age. But more than that, it would also bear the weight of the life of debauchery that he planned to live. So every time that he would go out and, and fill himself with sensuality and debauchery and living to excess, physically he would remain pristine, but the picture would bear the weight. So after almost two years of having this picture locked away, not seeing it at all, Dorian brings himself to unlock the picture and to look at it. And when he looks at it, he doesn't recognize it. It's a different picture. You wouldn't even know it was the same thing except for the uh, artist's signature on the bottom. It's a, it's a corpse. It's hideous. It's a demon. It's, it's something beyond his imagination. So uh, overcome at this point in his life with guilt and shame about the ugliness of that picture, he stabs it and tries to kill it. Now, here's where the story takes even a weirder turn. It is at that point, the story kind of cuts away from Dorian, and it tells that his servants and those walking by on the street hear this loud cry of pain, this shriek. And when they go into the room in the morning, they find a shriveled old man who has been stabbed in the heart and a pristine picture of the young Dorian Gray. It really is a fascinating uh, story. It's been made into a movie. It's been adapted in different places. But for me and for, I think, us in the series that we started last week, it raises a question that I think is worth considering. What, what if we could see what our sins were doing to us? What if we could physically see the effects that our sin were having, the toll that they were taking? I think one of the things that we'd come to realize quickly is that even the most respectable of our sins are still very serious and very deadly. We talked about that last week, about the serious nature of sin, the deadly nature of sin. And I think sometimes in our minds, we just equate those with the big sins. But I think the picture of Dorian Gray can remind us that even the smallest sin, the thing that we think nothing of, those sins are still scarring our souls. Let me read to you this quote from uh, author and pastor Kerry Newhoff. This is what he says. He says, Christians have become fairly good at focusing on the moral failings of others while ignoring their own. We pretend that the worst sin you can commit is sexual. And don't get me wrong, sexual sin has serious implications. But so does gossip and divisiveness and quarreling, sins that Christians routinely ignore, mostly because we commit them. I'd suggest that just as many congregations and reputations have been ruined by gossip, divisiveness, and quarreling as have been stained by sexual sin. But you never know it given the way that we talk about sin. I'm all for surrendering our sexuality to Christ, but I'm also for submitting our propensity to gossip, our divisiveness, and our quarreling to Jesus and dealing with that seriously. Imagine what the church might look like if that happened. 
think that's a fascinating idea, right? Like, and I think Carrie's right. If, if we looked at the sins in America today and listened to the sermons in the church in America today, we might think that the worst sin, maybe even the only sin, is sexual sin. But we know that's not true. That there are big sins that are out there and prevalent and, and making news headlines in the public square. And then there's sins that we think are far more respectable. Sins that we tend to wink at. Now, before you just think that this is a modern pastor's reaction against what he sees in the modern church, I would invite you to begin this morning turning with me to Romans chapter 1. Because what you're going to see there, I think is going to surprise you. You're going to see that what Kerry Newhoff does really echoes what Paul says to this new church that has been started in Rome. So if you got your Bible, we'll go to Romans chapter 1. I'll catch up with you in a minute. Uh, let me kind of lay the, the, the setting for Romans. Uh, Paul has started Romans, writing to the church in Rome uh, with greetings and an introduction. And then Paul really gets his letter to the church in Rome rolling by laying out an argument, indicting those who would suppress their own innate knowledge of God. They knew things about God that were evidence from creation, and yet they suppressed that truth. Why? so that they could more freely gratify the lust and desires of their own flesh. Because man rejected God's truth, it says that God let them go ahead and do whatever their sinful hearts desired. And because man suppressed that knowledge of God, God abandoned them to their evil minds. Toward the end of chapter 1, Paul gives a list of some various sins that are ascribed to those people. Those wicked people whose actions gave evidence to the unseen but grossly depraved and ugly heart and mind that was within them. And some sins on that list are, are things that we might expect, but many aren't. So I want you to listen to uh, what Paul has to say and read it with me in Romans chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 26. This is what Paul says. He says, For this reason... God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Now, I hope you caught this because I think it's probably surprising, and I know it was to me, I think the first time I saw this, that right alongside murder are some seemingly respectable sins, such as quarrels, which is simply just bickering and fighting, gossip, even just being disobedient to one's parents. And while that list isn't really meant to be exhaustive, it does serve to remind us that God sees all sin. Not just the big sins. God sees all sins as serious and as deadly. But I think if we're being honest, I mean, at best, this idea rubs us the wrong way. It's just it's not something about it that, that sits well with us. But I think more probably, if you really understand what Paul's saying, it's very unsettling, especially as a follower of Jesus, right? 
because it goes against how we see sin to see Paul list these sexual depravities and murder in the same breath as gossip and pride. Like that, that's that's a, a non sequitur for us, right? That doesn't make sense. Those, those two things aren't supposed to be alike. Why? Because we don't see sin the way that God sees sin. We think that there are some sins that are just unforgivable. They are the worst of the worst. And some sins are respectable. They're, they're not perfect, but whatever, they're, they're okay. Now, neither of these are accurate. And, and next week, I hope you, you tune back in or make it to one of our live locations next week, because that's where we're going to lean into the idea of unforgivable sins. But neither are those are accurate. There's not some sins that are unforgivable because they're so bad, and there's not some sins that are respectable because they aren't. You see, last week we said that in order to begin killing sin in our life, we had to refuse to excuse it. We have to see our sin not as we want to see our sin. We have to see our sin as God sees our sin and call it what it is, sin that is serious and that is deadly. Not these respectable sins, not these acceptable sins. We need to see uh, a homosexual, uh, homosexuality with gossip. We need to see murder with pride. These are all in the same category, serious and deadly. But I think for us to really get good at that, that idea of refusing to excuse our sin, of seeing all sin as sin, the way God sees it, for us to get really good at that, I think we have to understand a little of why we do it. Specifically, like, why is it so easy for us to minimize some sins in our lives, especially when Scripture clearly condemns them? You know, right? Like, what we just read in Romans chapter 1, we, we see pride, we see gossip, we see quarreling, we see those who slander others. And I think those are things that we all uh, minimize in our own lives. And as Paul rightly says, we even applaud it in others. When we see candidates who slander others, when we see, you know, leaders who are proud and boastful, we, we pat them on the back as being bold men. When we see people who are prone to quarrelsomeness or, or fighting, we say, look at them. They're not just going to be a punching bag. And what Paul says is, no, this is sin. This is deadly. So why is it that we see this sin and we minimize it when Scripture's so clear about condemning it? I think there's a few reasons. Uh, number one, I think it's because our hearts within us, our hearts are deceptive. Uh, this is what Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says. Jeremiah says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Hearts are deceptive above all things, more deceitful than anything else. And I think that we need to understand that the deceptive nature of our hearts can keep us from seeing the deadly nature of sin in our life. What do I mean by that? Just really simply, if we want to do something, our hearts will find a way to help us justify it. You know, uh, I think we've talked about this at the orchard before, that we tend to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions, right? So it doesn't matter if we do something that's wrong, our hearts will help us justify that often by our intentions. Or if there are things that are clearly sinful in Scripture, if it's something we want to do, we will find a way to reread and reinterpret Scripture. Why? Because our hearts are deceptive. If you want to do it, your heart will find a way to ease your conscience. I think more than that, our minds and souls are desensitized. 
In this very same chapter, Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul says this. He says, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Look at this. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. He says it again in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So now, to, to be very clear, because I want to make sure we handle the scriptures correctly, uh, Paul, in both of these passages we just read, he is referring specifically to Gentiles who have turned away from the truth of God, right? That, that's who he's addressing specifically in Romans 1 and Ephesians 4. However, I think it's fair and important for us to realize that because of the pervasive nature of sin that is in us, that dwells in our flesh, we still carry much of that callousness, much of that blindness in us even now as we follow Jesus, that we have sin in our flesh that we will not be fully free of until we see Jesus. Uh, not next week, but the next as we wind up the series, we're going to talk about the hope that we can be free from the power of sin and free from the penalty of sin. And, and, and yet we won't until the next life comes be free of the presence of sin. And so because of that presence of sin within us, it is easy for us to become desensitized in our minds and our souls. We need to understand that we're always going to be blind to things that we're blind to until Jesus, working through his word by his spirit, opens our eyes to begin to see him. You know, I think the closer we get to Jesus, the more we're going to see sin in our lives. And I think that may be kind of counterintuitive. Well, Chip, I, I thought if I came to church and read my Bible and prayed more, that I'd become more righteous, that I wouldn't see sin in my life. No, no. You will become more righteous as you follow Jesus. However, you will also begin to see more sin in your life. Because the closer we get to Jesus, the more these smaller sins are no longer small. They're deadly. They're serious. That's why Paul, near the end of his life, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, so we know he was being honest, says that I think I'm the chiefest, the biggest, the foremost of all sinners. If we don't see sin, if we don't see even much sin in our lives, the truth is we may be following the Pharisees more than we're following Jesus. If your God never disagrees with you, never confronts you, never convicts you, then that God is probably just a projection of yourself. The true, holy, righteous God of Scripture is something that we will never measure up against in our own flesh. And the closer we get to him, the more through his word, by his spirit, he shines light on those areas of our lives that are not yet made and remade into his image. But I think beyond both of those realities, and they are realities, that we should be honest enough to say that there are some gray areas that many Bible-believing followers of Jesus disagree on, right? Uh, we try to see sin the way God sees sin, but our flesh is deceptive and our uh, hearts become hardened. 
And so sometimes we don't agree on what is sin. Some Christians disagree on the sinfulness of issues that range from alcohol to dancing to baseball games. I, I kid you not, I know of a church that says in their church bylaws that you can't go to a baseball game, it's sinful. So how should we personally deal with these gray areas that we see when it comes to our efforts avoiding sin? I think part of the way we begin to address the areas in our life that may seem to be gray is to make sure that we're asking the right question. And again, we've talked about this at the orchard before, but we've got to change our question from can I to should I? It's not can I do this thing and be okay, it's should I do this thing? This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial, right? It, the question is not can I, but it should I. Just because you think you can doesn't mean that you actually should. Just because you could be forgiven doesn't mean that you should go after it. I mean, think about it like this. What, what is our goal? If we are followers of Jesus, what is our goal? Is it as is it to get as close to sin as we can and still make it to heaven? If that's your goal, then it should be a red flag that something's not right in your heart. You probably don't know Jesus if your goal is to have as much sin in your life as possible, but make sure you still get to heaven when you die. See, our goal should be to reflect the beauty of Jesus in our lives as much as we possibly can in every area that we can. So it's not what can I do and get away with it. It's what should I do to look more like Jesus. You see, I think when we understand the deadliness and the ugliness of even the most respectable sins, I think maybe the picture of Dorian Gray becomes a little more relevant, right? See, even those smallest sins are scarring our soul, whether we see it or not. Even those things that we don't think are a big deal are marring the beauty of Christ that we should be developing as followers of Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that rather than having to deal with all that sin and ugliness on our own, like Dorian tried to do, which killed him, and every time we try to take care of our own sin, it winds up killing us, Instead of that, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes all of that sin and all of that ugliness on himself. I mean, that is literally what he did on the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He took all of that sin, all of that ugliness on himself, and in so doing, it killed him. He died bearing the weight of our sin. And why did he do it? He took all of that sin and all of that ugliness, he took it to the grave so that he could leave it there when he was raised to life three days later and that he might bring us this new life and give us his beauty. So why Paul continues to say, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. That he takes all of the ugliness of our sin and he bears it in himself and it killed him. But three days later, he walked out of the grave and left our sin there so that now we can experience that freedom. We can experience that new life. He can give us the beauty of his righteousness. But we have to see sin as sin. 
we've got to refuse to excuse it. Because unless we will come to grips with the ugliness of our sin, we will never really see the beauty of Jesus. So we have some folks right now who are willing and waiting and really wanting to pray with you. Maybe if this is something you're struggling with and there's some sin in your life that you're just having a hard time getting free of, they're here. Or maybe for the first time, you have been confronted and convicted by the Spirit about the ugliness of sin that you thought was no big deal, and you see the hopelessness of trying to deal with it on your own, and today you are willing for the first time to trust Jesus as your Savior. If so, we want to help walk you through that. So if you're on Facebook, drop us a message. If you're on the online platform, click the live prayer button. But we are here to talk with you. For right now, let me just have a word of prayer for you. So God, I thank you for your word that even today it cuts us to the core. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the ugliness of our sin, not just the big sins, but the little sins, the respectable sins. We would see them as serious and deadly and ugly. And when we see that ugliness, when we confront it, when we refuse to excuse it, that it would help us see the beauty of Christ and the greatness of the gospel and what it is that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.